Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Series 7, Episode 3 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Now, first of all, I have to say thank you to so many of you that got in touch after Owen's episode last week. Lots of you enjoyed it. I got lots of lovely messages on Instagram, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I love chatting to him. And, oh, what a lovely guy. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly recommend it. Even if I say so myself, I think it's a great episode. I hope that you're having a good week. It is currently half one on Saturday the 25th of March 2023. I wonder when you're listening to this. Last night I was in Norwich doing my tour show and it was so much fun. And the night before I was in Brighton and it was gorgeous as well. And I met so many of you afterwards at both shows and uh, many of you mentioned this podcast. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I'm so delighted that it means so much to so many people. Today we have a fantastic episode with Sophie Hagen. I'm going to mention now that there is some talk of self-harm. There's some talk of suicidal thoughts. If that's something that you feel that you can't listen to right now or indeed ever, then this episode's not for you. Go and have a listen to another one. I just wanted to mention that just in case anyone's not feeling up for that today. As ever, I will share some wonderful listener emails and then we will go on with the fantastic chat that I had with Sophie. Okay. Hi, Susie. I'm a fairly new listener to your podcast, having discovered both like-minded friends and out in November last year. But as both podcasts have become my go-to thing to listen to at work, it feels like I've been listening for much longer. I'm now greatly looking forward to seeing your show in London at the end of next week. I'll see you at the Soho which will actually be the first time I've ever seen stand-up live. Oh, wow. I hope you enjoy it. Having been born in the year 2000, I'm between a few years and a few decades younger than your guests. I've found the stories you've shared through these conversations incredibly valuable in understanding how much and how little queer experience have changed. As a trans man who came into their queerness around 2014-2015, I feel Like most of the big battles were behind us as gay marriage was being legalised across the globe and trans people were becoming more visible and accepted than ever. Unlike so many people before me being educated under Section 28, my teenage years involved a lot of optimism about a future where I was able to transition and to be living in a world where I could happily be myself with little to no trouble. The dawn of the 2020s proved this was not going to be the case. I've now been on the NHS gender waiting list for over four years, living in limbo while I wait to start my life, while watching with increasing fear as trans rights come under threat. 
It's this cultural backlash that has made me realise that anti-LGBT attitudes are not a thing of the past, as I once had hoped. In the optimism of my teenage years, it was shocking to discover that queer people were still very much unequal under UK law when I was born. I started school in 2004, and while I may have narrowly avoided being directly educated under Section 28, all of my teachers would have been trained under that law. I'm only now able to unpack the impact of anti-LGBT attitudes and my teacher's unwillingness to do anything but reject the early sides of my transness and what that's done to me. Hearing the experiences of those who are old enough to understand the oppression of recent past has helped me a great deal in understanding my own early traumas. Hearing your guest stories has helped me feel part of an intergenerational community of queers who have already overcome so much against terrible odds, giving me that extra bit of hope that everything won't always be terrible. Please, please, please keep up the good work. Bye, 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 bye. And that's from Sam. If you want to read this out, you have the permission to use my name. Oh, Sam, I know. It's such a tough time at the minute for our community, especially for trans folk within our community. I hope that you're doing okay. And I hope that you've got people around you. And if you haven't, maybe reaching out to Mermaids or to Stonewall. Stonewall probably, because that's um, aimed at, at, at older people maybe you could find uh some support there but i'm wishing you nothing but the best and please come and say hi after the soho show next week it'll be lovely to meet you okay here's another one i think this one's pretty special guys strap in hi Susie. i'm new to the podcast but from the first episode i listened i really had the urge to write to you about my dad a bit of backstory i'm a 36 year old cisgender, bisexual woman, and I was raised in a very open, liberal family. I came out to my friends at the age of 13 when I told my best friend, I don't think I just like boys. I've never had the conversation with my family. My parents had gay friends and were welcoming of any gay friends that I had. My mum always asking me, any boyfriends or girlfriends at the moment, rather than assuming the gender of my love interests. It was an environment that made it clear that I didn't need to come out as straight, and I also didn't need to come out as queer, as long as I was happy and with someone who treated me well. In fact, when I got engaged to a man, my parents made a point of saying, oh, we always thought you'd marry, insert name of ex-girlfriend. She was so lovely. When I was 27, my mum died quite suddenly, and it took a couple of years for my dad to navigate through the grief and start the new part of his life. He moved house 50 miles away, left his job and made new friends, and started to enjoy his life again. His friendship group consisted almost exclusively of LGBT plus people, and he had a particularly close friend with a man named Mike. They even had the Married Couples National Trust membership, as it was better value. The ongoing joke in my circle of friends was, my dad's not gay, but his boyfriend is. My dad died in early 2021, and Mike helped care for him before his death. After his death, during all the admin that goes along with death, it became clear that my dad was indeed gay, and had always been gay. He had been a closeted gay man his entire life, and it was only in the last few years that he really lived his honest life, with his friends at least. I have so many regrets about the fact that we didn't explicitly have the conversation, and have been through a fair amount of therapy to come to terms with the guilt and sadness I have that he hid his true self from everyone for so long. I know that he was so accepting of everyone else, but he never felt accepted himself. I wish he was able to be himself for more of his life. I'm now surrounded by his friends, who we affectionately refer to as the elder gays, and my daughter has a wonderful Uncle Mike in her life, 
and she will grow up to recognise love in any form. I guess what I'm trying to say that if you're an LGBTQ plus person and you're in the closet, please don't wait too long to share yourself with the world, only if it's safe to do so. Have the conversation. My dad was on the planet for 67 years, but he only lived his truth for five of those years, and that's no way to live. I've only listened to a couple of episodes of this podcast so far, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. But can you recommend any particular episodes where you might talk to older members of the LGBTQ plus community and their experiences in perhaps the same era as my dad's? My name's Kate and I'm very happy for my name to be shared, but I don't want to give my dad's name as I feel a heavy responsibility for not outing him in his death to people that he wasn't out to in his life. Oh, wow, Kate. Thanks so much for sending this in. First of all, Uncle Mike sounds wonderful. Um, I think that your dad's story is sadly one that's quite common. And in fact, I have received quite a lot of emails over the last three years of doing this podcast from people that haven't come out. And I receive emails where people say, please don't share this, but I just want to share myself with you. And you're right, if it's safe to do so, and you have people around you, you know, coming out can really lift a lid on all that stress and anxiety and can help you begin living your real life, your true life. And whilst it's very sad that your dad had such a long time in the closet, I'm so pleased for him that he got those last five years to be truly himself and that he got his mic and their National Trust membership together. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for your kind words and for your advice to people. It sounds like you were raised in a gorgeous home and wow, wouldn't that be the dream if one day we were all raised in a home like that? where any boyfriends or girlfriends at the moment was the was the question. Hopefully, as we move forward, more and more, more parents will be like your brilliant mum and dad. But thank you so much, Kate. Now, recommendations. I don't know whether you're going to be listening to this one, but if you are, I do have a couple. There's so many episodes. There's so many episodes. I'm just looking to make some suggestions. I would say... Uh, Darren Stiles, although he's not quite as old as your dad, but I think that episode, you might relate to some of the things in that. Um, also, Dr. Ranch, who isn't um, who, who isn't very old at all. He's very young and, um, and very beautiful in person, if you're interested in knowing that. And beautiful on the telly, what a lovely guy. His episode's really interesting because he lived in the closet for, for quite some time and, and you might find some things to relate to in that uh, Darren Hayes, who is the lead singer of Savage Garden, who I saw this week. I saw his show this week in Brighton, which was wonderful. Again, not nearly as old as your as, you, as your dad was, but you know, he talks about a lot of the the feelings that your dad might have been going through. And um, Michael Cashman, Lord Cashman, his episode I think is brilliant. If you don't know who he is, he's he was an MEP for a long time, and now he sits in the House of Lords, and. He's, uh, he's around the same age as your dad, um, I, th- I believe. And I think that, yes, a lot of the things that he has to say might be of interest to you and it might connect to some of what your dad was feeling. I hope that helps. And thank you so much for getting in touch and thanks for listening to the podcast. Right. I don't know if you can hear my cat meowing outside the door. I'm a cliche, if nothing else, guys. 
Okay, let's get on with today's conversation. The brilliant Sophie Hagen. I loved this chat. I thought it was so interesting. And I think that, I think that Sophie's brilliant. And I really hope you enjoy this chat. Oh, listener, I'm excited for this one today. Sophie Hagen is a multi-award winning stand-up comedian, writer and podcaster. They are honest, vulnerable and very, very funny. Sophie burst onto the London comedy scene from Denmark in 2012 and very quickly made waves on the comedy circuit, winning numerous new comedian competitions and going on to win the much coveted Edinburgh Festival Newcomer Award for their debut show in 2015. They have toured extensively with a number of shows to adoring audiences. Sophie is a much celebrated podcaster and their podcasts include Bad People for Radio 4, Secret Dinosaur Cult Meeting and Made of Human which is now known as Who Hurt You. I think Sophie is brilliant but don't just take my word for it. Fantastic, consistently funny, personal and a slyly powerful show. This is certainly the show of a winner. From Chortle, The Herald said, incredibly funny. The Mirror said, five stars, hilarious, clever, touching and funny. I am delighted to have them on the show today. Welcome Sophie. Thank you. Do people usually react weirdly when they've just had to listen to their own bio that they probably co-wrote themselves? <laughs> well, I, I I always try and change them a bit because I want to share what people obviously like to share about themselves. But then at the same time, I only ever have people on the podcast that I genuinely want to have because yeah. you know, I make it and it's something. So I always, they're always lovely because I would never have, I would never choose to spend an hour with someone that I was like, oh God, this person again. It's this weird mix of like wanting to be like, oh, oh, well, when they say numerous, actually, I think it was so, like, you just, like, just leave it. Just let let something nice be said about be. you instead of having to, like, be pedantic about it. So I'm just going to say, thank you very much. It's very lovely to be here. Well, you did really burst onto the comedy scene. I remember when I first sort of became aware of you and everyone was like, you've got to see Sophie. She's really, really good. And then, yeah, saw you at gigs. And, yeah, you always felt like you were sort of two steps ahead of, like, what the zeitgeisty thing of, that people were talking about. I felt like you were a step ahead of stuff. I was like, oh, wow, they're being funny and a feminist. Oh, okay, maybe I could do it. I, I didn't realize we were allowed to talk about these subjects. I feel like you were always quite fearless oh, in your nice. stand-up. I always find, especially with stand-up, that there is a fine line between, like, brave and stupid. <laughs> and-, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> I hope... I'm like 95% brave, <laughs> but I also know sometimes it's just because I don't think. Yeah, I think that it's hard, isn't it? Because you want to, you can only ever be one person telling one version of a story. But then, of course, when you do that, I think sometimes people forget when you're a stand-up that you're not a leader. You're just <laughs> a human. You're just going, yeah. this is a thing. This is how I felt this day about that thing. And it might not be right in two years but that's what stand-up is it's about a moment yes and it's also and i'm horrible for this because i'm very much a case of like i am always right i in a in a in many ways i am a leader because you can trust everything i say always Mm -hmm. and at the same time don't hold me accountable because i'm just a human (laughs) yeah and like, I'm not here to, like, teach you anything. I can fuck up all the time if I want. So I understand if there is some confusion out there because <laughs> I kind of want, I want my cake and eat it too. Oh, I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. I like showing the vulnerability and the flaws of myself on stage. I think it's certainly something that sort of our generation of comics 
a certain group of us do a bit more but we're a bit more I, it's my favorite thing it's my yeah. favorite thing in the whole world and also i loved how i don't remember if you set this on while we were recording or before but the thing of saying just correct me i'm fine with being corrected in public i'm like <laughs> yes i love that like i that, i think that is incredibly important especially yeah. right now it's so important because i think some years ago maybe it's still probably still a thing somewhere but there was so much of a focus on being right and being perfect yeah. and yeah. it was suddenly it was like if you're not perfect you are immediately cancelled mm-hmm. and i hope that we're now like don't worry i'm not going to go into like joe rogan cancel culture yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i think we we've kind of realized after pointing out so many people for having had something for having tweeted something in 2013 mm-hmm. we're now realizing that oh if we cancel everyone who does that there'll be no one left because every single one of us have said something wrong, done something like at some point and we're just going to end up with nothing because no one's perfect. So if we're looking for this like purity aspect of people, this is not going to happen. So instead it's about, well, how do they handle being called out? Like, yeah. Do they regret it? Do they do the work, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I found that really interesting, actually. I was reading an article of yours earlier for The Guardian. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was about finding a stand-up that doesn't do fat jokes. Mm. And it was a really interesting read. And the thing that I thought was very honest and refreshing about the article was that you said, I did fat jokes. I made, oh. I, was, I, I was awful about myself. And it's good to sort of go, oh, because I've done homophobic stuff. Mm-hmm. I've done sort of really tropey stuff because it's an easy gag. And I hope that now that I'm not really doing it. Yeah, but we probably still do sometimes. You know, that's yeah. the thing. I, I spoke to a friend of mine who's a very, very prominent body activist, like one of the mm-hmm. most hardcore people I know. And at one point, her partner said, have you lost weight? And she said, oh, like, thank you. And she was like, wait, what? Where did that come from? I've not thought like this. In oh, 10 wow. years, like this is yeah. her full-time job. And still there was something so deep within her brain that was like compliment, thin yes. equals compliment. Yes. And I think we still tend to do it also because a lot of, I think, us being funny, funny comedians is a def- oh, at least started as some kind of defense mechanism in itself. For sure. So I think when we are in a, in a sort of stressed situation, it, it's a go-to you know, the self-defense, ha ha yeah. And then you go, wait, where did that come from? That doesn't align with my values or what I actually think. But we tend to react before we do the thinking bit. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I used to, my, my opener used to be sort of really mean about myself because I thought, well, if I say it, then they can't. And then yeah. I sort of beat them to the gag. But then years later, I sort of retrospectively went, oh, but I just put myself down in front of, I mean, you know, added together thousands of people. <laughs> like, over the course like, oh, of five God, years. Yeah. That's so horrific. Yeah. Why did I do that to me when I was just trying to be funny? I was such a misogynist. Mm. I was really, like, I was the most sort of pick me. I mean, it was the first ever TV thing I did was fortunately in Danish, <laughs> but that was horrible. It was mm. it was really 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 offensive and bad, and it was just me wanting male approval from my male coworkers, and I did. Yeah. You know, they loved it. They were like, mm. "Oh, finally, 
they were like finally a funny woman i'm not binary but in their yeah. defense they also didn't know i, I didn't yeah. know they didn't know but it was like finally and i was like yeah i'm i'm saying the things that the the other women don't say and like, i'm brave enough to be a uh, bitch about women oh yeah like oh but i i, I am not like them so like i, I can say yeah. the things it's shitty but also mm. well, we learn right totally. we learn. and i think for certainly for I'll use the word queer as a catch-all for all of us, but I think certainly for queer people, there's not really, certainly, I think sometimes for gay men, but for queer people on the whole, there's not really a textbook of how we should be a comedian. You know, there's such a lot of history around men being stand-ups and then women being certain kinds of stand-ups. And then other than Ellen, probably but who did stand up for a bit and then became a talk show host. There's not, I certainly didn't feel like I had sort of queer elders until I met people like Jen Brister and Zoe Lyons and people that actually became friends, but people in, you know, to aspire to be, there wasn't an awful lot of it. No. And in Denmark where I started out, the rhetoric around the female comedians was really grim, Mm. really, really grim. And it was, the basic gist of it was like, well, they're not real comedians. They're more like like women. <laughs> really, more like just a, a, a woman talking in like yeah. a certain rhythm and then people yeah. laugh, but it's not like a comedian. And they had very much had the uh, monopoly on deciding who was a comedian. Yeah, totally. Wasn't. So it was also just, even if I'd wanted to, you know, go and see... A, a lady do mm-hmm. comedy I would not have done it because that would have been you know frowned upon because yeah. why would you do that I remember being backstage at oh, I think it was like a jonglers so that really dates it so this must be eight eight years ago something like that seven eight years ago and a male comedian who was from sort of the old older guards of stand-ups <laughs> I had a, I was doing a gig and it was quite a sort of a rowdy crowd but I because I did so much in the clubs, I, I sort of thrived in that environment sometimes. I knew that I knew that crowd quite well. And so it looked like it would be quite a hairy gig. And then actually, they were sort of great, just a bit pissed. They weren't homophobic. They were just sort of a bit, Wee! and I was fine with that. I had a really nice gig. And I was really pleased with myself. I thought, God, I was really frightened before I went on. And actually, I, they weren't homophobic. And I turned them around. And they listened to my stories. And it was really lovely. And then this older guy, I came off stage, and this older guy uh, said, uh, yeah, that was okay, but the only reason you did so well is because of all of your stand-ups so rhythmical. And I was like, oh, okay. And then in my head, I'm like, oh, God, I guess I'm one of those rhythmical, like a rhythmic gymnastics. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what, really what this is, but okay, I'm rhythmical. And then he proceeded to go on and die on his fucking ass to close the show, doing material that I'd seen him do five years previous. And he's just like, Wow. And he came off stage not even embarrassed, like, oh, they were awful. And you're like, they weren't, because I had good stuff, and they were good. They only wanted rhythmic stuff. But it's just, yeah, you're rhythmical. And it was one of those things that for so long as a newer stand-up, it's sort of, I'd write a new routine. And what I do is quite rhythmical. It is sort of da 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 That's sort of my style. And, uh, and then I would, like, write a bit and then be like, oh. But is it rhythmical? Is the only reason I'm getting a laugh because of the rhythm? And in the end, I'd be like, no, fuck that guy. It's ridiculous. I mean, but it that also, like, 
it's the way they find things to tell themselves mm-hmm. that there's so many excuses that have nothing to do with them just not being that good. Oh, for sure. There's literally everything else. Like I remember doing sort of the same situation, a bit of a rowdy audience, and I was one of the only comedians on the bill who did well. And I, the uh, promoter had told all of the comedians beforehand that this was um, really hard if you were a woman, like especially if it was a woman, like it was really, really hard for women, women, women. They hate women. <laughs> and then I did well. And then afterwards he was like, oh, yeah, they, I get, yeah, I mean, they, they did seem to like you, but, but, oh, but I guess like a lot of them were fat. <laughs> I was like, wait, no. what? Oh, oh so, so now they, they don't like women, but if you're fat, then does that negate the woman thing? You cease to be seen as a woman. I mean, <laughs> what a load of bollocks. I think we've just heard so much of it. You know, it's so much of like, well, it's because of this. Oh, that. And it's like, yeah. no, maybe you're, maybe, maybe, maybe we're fairly good at what we do because yeah, we've done it our job. every night for 13 years. Yeah. Like. <laughs> you mentioned Denmark before. So I know that you grew up in Denmark. There's not much info about you online. Uh, whereabouts did you grow up? Well, there is stuff about you, but there's not specifics about like where you grew up. I grew up in Sunosu. Right. You, you know, who doesn't you know, know Sunosu? Yeah. yeah. It's like a very tiny town village um, in like the middle of Denmark, just sort of surrounded by fields and stuff. There was like a school, a factory, uh, a roundabout, <laughs> a bakery. Um and I lived there until I was 10. And then we moved to a suburb in the outskirts of Copenhagen, mm. which is like in Denmark, quite far away from Copenhagen, but it's a 30 minute train ride. So I'm, I was closer to the so central Copenhagen than I am now to central London. And I live in <laughs> London, right? Yeah. Uh, and I lived there till I was 18. And then I moved into Copenhagen and lived there till 20, I was 22 or 23. And then I moved to London. And so the first place that you mentioned, Sonosu? Sonosu. What would that have, if you said there's like one school and a roundabout, of course, and the bakery, did that mean that like everyone knew each other? Yeah. Like real small town vibes? Yeah. Right. Um, Very, very much so. But then that's where things get tricky and weird because... I obviously grew up with my mother, mm-hmm. single mother at the time. Well, at the whole time, <laughs> always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds really weird. Always a single mother. Um, she sticks to her niche. <laughs> she knows her casting bracket. It's where she is. Yeah. My mother is very, very unusual as a human being. I've never met anyone like her. I've never heard of anyone like her, good and bad. Like she's mm-hmm. a very tricky person, but she... I think she's just very, very much an individual who does not care what anyone else thinks. And she's very sort of just confident in her own opinions. So she wasn't about that, like, small town life. Yeah. So she would criticize it. Uh, my mother is very much a person who does not respect authority in any way. Okay. So she would kind of cause a bit of a stir in this small town. And would actively, at least, you know, in the way she was talking to to me about it, she would talk negatively about the small town things that sort of came with it. And 
she, you know, she would find the other sort of social outcasts and befriend them instead. Uh, we we lived next door to a woman who was uh, in witness protection from like some kind of gang. And my mom was like hooked on her as like a friend because she was like, well, that's exciting where everyone else wouldn't talk to this woman because she'd been like involved in bad stuff. Right. And every time someone was like uh, narrow-minded, bigoted about anything, she would rage about it and like make a big deal out of like, that is absolutely not okay. And when I was 10, there was like a, a community thing where people, all the parents got together and was like, we're really bigoted. And my mom was like, fuck that. You are not growing up in this. Like, oh, this is wow. so bad. So then she moved us to this place in the outskirts of Copenhagen, which was uh, at the time referred to as uh, the the biggest ghetto in Denmark. So it was like 80% people from like immigrant families. Because mm -hmm. she was like, you are absolutely not learning to be this kind of person who is you grow up in this like little tiny, small town, narrow-minded, mm. racist, horrible society. So now we're going there, which I really respect her for. But it, it, yeah. it does, it, it gave me this like, so I, I was raised in this tiny town, but with someone who was opposed to it the whole time through, mm. you know, so I would make trouble at school and they'd be like, well, we're going to call your mom. And I was like, go ahead. Yeah. And they'd be like, well, Sophie is like, being really annoying because of this and that my mom would go well why shouldn't she be that does sound like that sounds like you're making the mistake here because like that's that sounds like a stupid rule and so i kind of did live in this like this disruptory place Ooh. this episode is brought to you by amazon prime you know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. I was about to ask, I feel like many children would go one or the other way where you'd be like really into authority because of having <laughs> a mum that was so against it or like, fuck this, I'm coming with you. <laughs> I was raised, it was just very weird. Like it was very, I didn't, and I didn't know it was weird. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, everything. Because obviously it was all I knew. But then I would see other people's parents and I'd be like, this seems odd. <laughs> Right. Seems Why would your mom be mad at you? Like, I remember when hearing about people who had uh, just basically just any rules. Oh, no, I'm not allowed to be out past nine. Like, who says you're not allowed? The police? Or like, no, my parents. I was like, what? You're not allowed to be what? Like, it was just a completely different world. Mm. So, oh, and then at the same time, which is relevant. So I'm, I'm non-binary, which is... A whole other thing but i think my mom is as well but doesn't have the i don't know 
language context yeah to yeah. yeah language the but she uses always like she wears she finds all of her clothing in the men's section she's never worn makeup never done her hair no like nothing that is like known as like femininity mm-hmm. she would never refer to me as girl there was no like gendery rules there was no like oh well, girls shouldn't do this girls shouldn't do that it was always just like person mm-hmm. and i don't think she ever thought about it consciously that was just the way she saw the world my theory is that that's because of the way she saw herself mm. so she was never you know she was very had a lot of what we today would call like masculine traits right but also knew nothing about you know she started working in a factory when she was like 14 or 15 has never had any formal education so she had no language around feminism or gender theory or anything like that Mm. she was just herself yeah and that just kind of rubbed off on us so i didn't have the same like, I remember it wasn't until I started doing stand-up when I was 21 that suddenly I was referred to as a woman all the time. And that was the first time I really noticed it. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Wom- like, f- woman. I was like, why is this being woman? Like, <laughs> this yeah. didn't really make sense to me. Because in those early sort of 2010 sort of areas, I think we were seen as sort of a novelty act on the bill. It was like you'd have a musical act. And then, you know, yeah. maybe someone that did a character and a woman. The woman, yeah. It, you know, it, I know that you don't use that, that word to describe yourself now, but... but yeah, but they... Yeah, yeah, just feeling like an oddity. Yeah, and I remember just being like, well, I guess I must be, you know. There's the boobs, the vagina. Sure, mm-hmm. I guess I am. I couldn't quite figure out why it felt so weird. I was just like, sure, it must feel weird because... I'm a comedian. Like it must, it's also weird to be called a comedian. I'm very yeah. new. Yeah, sure. But I never made the <laughs> the connection between. I just I assumed this was how all women felt. Yeah, that the word women was like a a costume you couldn't quite fit into. I was like, you, you know how women how we all feel like uh, we kind of want to throw up <laughs> when we think about how we're women. Do you know that feeling? <laughs> that, that must be a woman thing, right? Of just like, ugh, this itches and this is not me, right? <laughs> but I think that the more we talk about these things, the more people are saying, oh, yeah, me too. Mm. It's just such an, an uh, it's not a new thing, I know, because I know that anyone that's in academia listening to this would be like, no, there have been non-binary people for thousands of years, so I'm not going to get it wrong, but I, oh, I'm not going to be trying to be specific, but, you know, non-binary people have existed forever and then the sort of restraints of femininity were more useful to anybody else well more useful to Mm. men and here we are but it's it is it is something that is sort of thrown around at you when you start as a stand-up what were you like as a teenager were you quite rebellious then uh yes and no i mean yes in terms of authority and school yeah very much so Mm Uh, but I was also very lucky that <laughs> I don't know how to say this without sounding like a dickhead, but I had a lot of value to a lot of teachers because uh, in many classes I would pull up the grade average, mm-hmm. so they you're couldn't smart. really. We aff- get it. You're smart. You can say you're, yeah. you're smart, but not you're just. Good. It's you're not smart. just smart. It's also it was like all because 
uh, anything to do with maths and science and stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. But then I was very good at cheating. And then I was very good at to- I was very good at talking my way out of situations. Sure, sure. I was very good at like uh semi manipulating certain teachers or and then I would just use my writing skills in all the other classes to like get the grade up. And so it wasn't just that it wasn't just the classic like academic cleverness. It was also just hmm. So I went to school do you have this here where you get a, um, it's like a, you get like a percentage of how much you haven't been there? Yes, I think you do. Yes, I think certainly now you do. Yeah. So the rule was like if you were there, you had to be there for like ninety percent plus, otherwise you'd get thrown out. <laughs> My absence percentage was thirty three percent, and. I'm, so basically, over the course of a three-year school run, I was only there for two years, <laughs> but oh, wow. somehow managed to talk my way into staying there because of my grades and mm-hmm. how sneaky I was when it came to certain exams and stuff. Uh, so I very much managed to just claw my way, you know, to this uh, kind of education thing. But a lot of that was me trying to take down the school. Mm-hmm. I would make, I made a, a website uh, <laughs> that was the name of the school, but with like one letter changed. So when parents would go and look for the school for their kids, there was a 50-50% chance that they would go into my website instead. And it would just have like pictures of all of the broken furniture, stor- like anonymous stories from kids about what was going on at the <gasps> school that they didn't like. And like, you know, drunk teachers, like... There's a teacher who once threw a bunch of scissors at my head, <laughs> which says a bit about how provocative I was. To be fair, I wasn't that provocative in that instance. I think she just got had enough of me. Um, and then I was I was forced to take down the website because they figured out it was me, even though there was no actual evidence, but they just knew because <laughs> that was my role. That sneaky smart one. I tried to get the cafeteria lady fired. I tried to do a lot of damage in that school because it was horrible. And they were just really sick of me. (laughs) A lot of the teachers were just sick of me. What were you doing when you were bunking off? Oh, I had a huge depression. So when I was 15, I think was, yeah, 15, 16, there was like like a, a moment that just launched this serious depression which uh escalated became self-harm um became suicidal ideation and then i was admitted when i was six, 16 or 17 and then i again managed to talk my way out of a you know proper admission yeah. <laughs> very very good at the talking my way out of things and then i started seeing a therapist so it was a lot of just basically not existing and just lying in bed and looking into a wall and just, you know, trying to get out of bed to go to school. really hard. Yeah, it was. It was. And I've I've obviously seen your stand-up quite a bit because we've worked together and I've watched one of your specials. Like, is... I'll say for myself and then you can say if you agree, that may be easier. I often find that me sharing stuff being like so i'm anxious and i'm this and i'm that and people laughing is them saying me too 
and it somehow makes me feel like more normal. Yes, because the opposite is that you share it and you'll always share it in a funny way. And then they go, oh, and that is the worst feeling in the world. Yes. But you're like, oh, you don't think, you don't think I can handle this. Or like, (laughs) you don't think think I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah, You don't, you don't think that I've, that I'm ready to talk about this. So you think that, Mm. what do you think I want? Pity? Like that is the worst feeling. So when they do laugh, I'm like, Okay, good. They trust that this is not something that's like me being broken. Or maybe it is, but it's I know I'm broken. I can deal with it. Yeah, they trust you in yeah. your in in how you're giving yourself. They're like, oh okay, this person feels that they can deal with this. Yeah. That makes sense. So with your journey as a queer person, and I do you identify as pansexual? Bisexual? Yeah, I queer I, I use queer because that covers fatness as well and the non-binary thing and then because someone then pointed out and it broke my brain that it's like well me being non-binary they were like well then you can't be straight i was like oh oh uh (sighs) i guess so right (laughs) but so yeah i think pan because then it's bisexual which i know means all genders as well Mm. It doesn't sound that way, so I like pansexual, but then it sounds like you need a degree in gender studies to know what that means. So I think queer and then it's but then again, queer sounds like like gay and not like the bi also has a straight aspect. <laughs> Basically, I don't know who I am, Susie. I think that labels are useful <laughs> to a point. Yeah. You know, there's a time when labels are really important, when we need to rally up together, when we need to be a community, when we need to be a totally inclusive community. You know, then labels can be really useful. And certainly I think when you're beginning your journey and you're working out how you identify, and if you identify, like me, I sort of went, oh, I'm a a lesbian. Although I actually hated that word for a really long time. But there was a understanding that that had happened before me because someone had bothered to mm, yeah. have a label for it. I don't know. There was something yeah. that clicked in for me that like was like, oh, historically I exist. That's such a love. I was just, I'm just feeling the sentiment of that. That was really nice. Historically I exist. I've never said that before. I've like realized that as I'm saying it to you. I love that. But I think that language is ever changing. Yeah. People sometimes feel like we need to have a label that will fit us forever, but it's okay to be like, I like this jacket for a bit. And there was a while that you don't see me out of this jacket. God, does she love that jacket. But then she finds another jacket and she's like, oh, actually, I kind of look good in this one too. You know, I think, <laughs> yeah. that we, I think that if we were less accusatory about what a label needs to be. If we weren't as obsessed with needing control, because mm-hmm. a lot of it is like not just what do you identify as, it is what will you forever be so that I can put you into this box oh, yeah. and then I can just put you in the box and then everything will be fine because I know where you are. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you say, I don't know, like my pronouns are sort of just whatever. And I guess I'm like non-binary. That's probably the closest thing. Yeah. That, but I also like, of course I get if you say woman, cause I'm socialized. People are just like, no, 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 no. Can you just give me the box so I can put you in the box? And I think that's, I get, I get the frustration, but I highly recommend that you let go of the whole idea of boxes. 
Mm-hmm. And just kind of let things be fluid, which I think is so difficult <laughs> for so many yeah, people. Yeah, break them down, get them in the recycling, just be. Yeah. And the, in terms of my own sort of queerness, I just assumed, <laughs> I think the first time I realized it was when my friend came out to me. I'm going to try and tell this in a very boring way because I do it on stage. I don't want to like do material. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> my friend came out to me as bisexual and it blew my mind. Give me the first draft of it before you funny down. Yeah, I'm trying to, yeah. I was like, you know when you're like, what actually happened when it wasn't funny? <laughs> she, it was the first time I'd heard the word bisexual. I'd never, I didn't know what it meant. And right. we were 14 and she told me she was bisexual mm-hmm. and explained what it meant. And I was just like, that's just being straight, isn't it? Like, because I just assumed that's how everyone felt. Right. And then because straightness was like the norm, I assumed I must have been straight. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I just thought straight was, you know, you're in love with all of the people. <laughs> you want to have sex with all of the people. Right. And I, I just never made the connection that that was like, and even then, because I was 14, I think that was the first time I realized that it, that something was off. But I don't think I really knew until, oh God. I don't know. It's so weird. Like I look through, I've, kept a journal for most of my teens (laughs) and some of the things were like oh my god I just love uh I love her so much she's such a good friend I just like want to be her I think I just want to be exactly like Mm. her or at the very least see her all the time and her lips just look so soft and I think a lot about her soft lips gee I must be a really good friend with her and like just so (laughs) so much of just not under, fully understanding what I was feeling because it was I was still putting myself into the straight box of going well surely in this straight relationship we have where we kiss and where I kind of just want to spend the rest of my life with her what a great friend what a great friendship we've spoken before on the podcast uh, about the sort of intense youth friendships <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amongst young women or people that are socialized as young women in that you is that right how I said that yeah 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 yeah. I think so yeah in the you know there were there were girls that I would be like I would walk through fire for that friend and you're like I think that's maybe too intense for someone that you sit next to in maths like (laughs) I have to admit I still sometimes have to ask my friends like does this person have the most beautiful eyes in the entire world or am I in love with them and then my friends would either be like, no, to be fair, those are pretty eyes. I'd be like, okay. Or they're like, those are very normal eyes. I'd be like, okay, I'm in love then, I guess. <laughs> okay, great. That's good to know. I, and I feel the deceit, the betrayal I felt when this girl I liked when I was like four, no, I was 16, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, she was, she played handball, which in Denmark is like, the queerest thing and it's amazing and she would wear right, all okay. these like track suits as if she came straight from from training <laughs> but then over this i was and i was so in love with her without knowing that i was but I, oh no i think i eventually realized that it probably was love and i told her well i, I did the sneaky thing of saying once I was in love, we'd known each other like six months. I was like, once upon a time, <laughs> I was like in love with you. Um, and she was like, ha ha ha, that's fun. And then over like the summer break, 
she changed her entire style, started wearing dresses and like high heels and like small bags and stuff. And I felt so betrayed. I couldn't understand why I felt betrayed, but I was just like, how could she do this to me? Like, how could she stop wearing the tracksuits? And I then just became, I just started like disliking her because I felt like she also changed her whole personality. Mm. And then she started telling people that I was gay for her. But because everyone knew how much I didn't like her, they thought she was lying about it. <laughs> it's like really lucky for me that me being a complete asshole made me not be able, like, not have to come out to a bunch of people. <laughs> the mess, the the teenage mess that was happening in my head oh. around. Also, at this time, I had a boyfriend, yeah. but in my head, that was like a whole other. That was a whole other situation. Like I would come home to him and be like, "Yeah, I'm really in love with her." Because in my head, it again, wasn't the same as if it had been a boy. Right. Yeah, I, I remember people in my school being like, oh, if girls kiss, it doesn't count. Yeah. Thank God for that. <laughs> God for that. Yeah, right. Jeez, that got me out of some hot water. <laughs> I was just, just friends. It's just because the boys were looking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were a party. The boys were looking. We were playing spin the bottle. Yeah. It's probably oh, a boy nearby. Know, practicing my spin for six weeks. It's fine. Can I tell you a really horrible thing? Please, please. We did. Um, it was called Pandora's box. So everyone puts a challenge or right. a question into a box, and then you again you sit uh-huh. in a circle and then you take turns taking out one. And I put make out with Christina on like three different notes in the hopes that I would get one of them so I could kiss her. Get it. And I did. A nice one. I did. <laughs> There's a very lovely photo taken with like one of the first digital cameras of, I think both of our mouths was like so open, like a proper teenage snog of just, I'm like trying to swallow her entire head. <laughs> Adorable. I never v- verbalized it to myself as bisexual or pansexual or queer or anything like that. It just still, I think it just felt... And to an extent, it still feels like that because my experience with women or people who are not cis men is so incredibly limited. Like I'm, I feel a lot like a virgin when it comes to whatever is in the cis man because, and I think that's to do with the fact that it's so easy to be straight. It's so easy. You know the rules. You know the lingo. There's a million rom-coms. There's <laughs> porn yeah. is written from the perspective yeah. of us straight men. So it's so easy. You know, all the rules where every time in my life it has been a woman or someone who is a cis man, it's like, but I don't know the rules. So I don't know how to do this. And I don't, mm. uh, uh, like I've, I've found myself crushing on women and then immediately, like when I try to flirt, I take on like this role of like toxic masculinity and I become all like, no, oh, hey, what's up? What are, you, what are you doing? Huh? Oh, look at you. I'm like, what is <laughs> happening? I can't. I really hope I get to see that in the flesh one day. I really hope that I get to look across a bar in, <laughs> and be like, oh, there it is. I'm rolling oh, okay. off my sleeves. Yeah. Like. yeah. Okay. Well, the dungarees are a given, but I mean, if I got a baseball cap, okay, fine, fine, fine. And they'll cat call you and you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see. I see. <laughs> hey. Oh, you're in town. Good to see you. <laughs> Show me your tits. Like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but that's so true. Honestly, it's so horrible. I, 
I, it was a big moment for me. It was a couple of years ago. I was, oh, I was so in love with, it was a non-binary person. And I found myself being like flirty in like toxic male kind of way. And they were just like, this is really uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, what am I doing? Like, of course it is. Mm. I'm so sorry. And it just, for like a year, I was like, I'm not going to flirt with anyone because I do not want to flirt like that. Like, I don't like it when other people flirt like that. I don't like flirting yeah. like that. So then I had to find out, well, how would I flirt? And I don't think I've found that out yet. It's so interesting that you say that. And I've never really put those two things together about, because I think that it's a, a real trope of a lot of lesbian women or queer women that sort of putting, doing what you think a, a guy would do, even if you do that unconsciously. And obviously I can't speak for all queer women, but I would certainly say from where I'm sat, there was definitely a part of that. There was definitely a certain look that I was trying to cultivate that was very inspired by Shane from the L world. Oh yeah. There was, there was a lot of sleeveless t-shirts. There was a lot of belts uh, you know, there was there was some cowboy boots briefly. I was trying a lot of things and none of them were me. You know, I sort of like to look like a, a nice gentleman from the, a gay man from the 1920s is basically my look. Um, but I was so desperate to sort of do that thing that's somewhere between like rock chick and like man that has a mustache and a motorbike. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, you know this way more than me, but when... And I hope it doesn't happen that much anymore. But when people are like, well, so when two women have sex, who's the man and who's the woman? Mm. And I feel like it's almost that, but in your in your own brain that goes, okay, so if I want to be with a woman, so I need to be the man then, I guess. Okay, mm. so what, and then you go into the, what is a man? And if you start to dig into gender stuff, it turns out that nothing is real. Everything's imaginary. Yeah. And then all you know is that, well, uh, James Bond was a man. So I guess if I dress yeah. like this, then I can kiss yeah. her. Like it's, I think our brains are still so yeah. far behind in terms of understanding all of this. And also yeah. I think we learn that flirting and sex is so performative. Like so much of what we learn about mm -hmm. it is, again, from like rom-coms and porn and all these fake places. So we are like, mm -hmm. okay, but then which role do I fill out? And like, it has to be, if a cis man directed my life, how how would he dress me? Because then that is what I need to wear. Because individuality is confusing. And then how do you how do you flirt if one isn't the domineering, aggressive yeah. person, and the other yeah. one isn't like a shy little flower? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, laughing. It's and I think it really sort of fucks with people's heads sometimes when there's a lesbian couple where they're both quite girly. People are like ah. Uh, uh, I, I don't. Uh, yeah. Or if they're both very butch. Yeah. And and, and so if you see people sort of occasionally, I mean, with Alice and I, like, I've got short hair and she's got long hair, but sh she is very much the one that's holding the reins, and I'm just like holding on at the back, going, "Fuck, what's going on?" Like, I'm so used. Like, it's we don't have those roles, but uh, stylistically, we make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. That's but too it's confusing. so stupid, isn't it? That that would be a thing. It's so it's so mad. Do you something? Did you um, find in the in the beginning? Did you find that there was like a was there something internally that felt? I don't know what the question is. Was that fucked up in your own head for a bit? Even if it's like subconsciously, yes, I think a bit? so. I think so. Yeah, I think so. For a while, I was like, 
I'm not I, 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 I'm not non-binary and I'm not trans, but I definitely knew that I was like, I wanted to be in this sort of boyish shape of a woman. And so when I would see people that were sort of quite cool, androgynous types, I'd be like, like oh God, what I'd give to be a German woman. You know, like just like... German PE teacher. <laughs> yeah, like short hair, some, you know, some... <laughs> Fuck me boots, you know. And by fuck me boots, I mean Doc Martens. Not, of course. Not, I think yeah. men traditionally called fuck me boots. But I think, uh, yeah, I think there's definitely, it's it's all about this thing that we're conditioned to be and want. Yeah. And it's what we grow up seeing and what, we're allo- told, what yeah. we've been allowed to find in ourselves. Oh, that sounds almost wanky, but like what we've been allowed to search in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like a big part of my... Uh, one of the reasons that I've just in general been very confused when it comes to anything like love and sex is also that there was just no femininity in my life, like from home. There was no femininity. Yeah. And no one taught me to wear makeup. No one, you know, my mom just bought me like the same kind of same seven t-shirts and seven jeans from the men's department. And so there is already this lack of like, but I don't know how to be feminine. And then the only masculine thing I know is really toxic. And like my mom was a single mother. I didn't see a, a proper relationship growing up. So there's so much like I'm this. You're also catching me at a moment where I'm about to write a whole book about sex and like my ah. sexuality, romance life. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out like I've had no guidance other than this toxic heteronormative world so like who who am i <laughs> yeah it's just a big yeah, question and like, where do you where do i fit but then also do i need to fit mm, yeah because if we've broken down all the boxes yeah what is there to fit into yeah oh <laughs> so terrifying it's 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 pandora's box but it's not about kissing christina oh it should it's... be though that was nice <laughs> He's married with kids. That's a shame. Yeah. Sure. Look, good for her. There was something that you said earlier that I'd love to, I was about to say circle back to. I've clearly been watching some sort of American drama about people that work in offices. No, let's circle. Let's circle back. Which I love that sort of thing. And (laughs) I'm going to circle back, actually. Guys, can we circle back? Um, There was something you said about sort of, that I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on and, and, and how that all sits within you in that queerness also encompasses being fat. Yeah. How? Because I know that you talk a lot about, well, your book was called Happy Fat and about sort of like activism around size and around positive body positivity, as you mentioned before. Can you explain to me a little bit about how those things fit in for you? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Like I remember the first time I heard it, someone referred to fat as queer and I was... Obviously, that didn't make sense at all because, you know, queer equals sexuality. And mm-hmm. there's something about queerness which historically feels like this box you put things into that just wasn't considered normal. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have so much in common. Like everyone who doesn't fit in to the normal box, there is this other space like the way I visualize it in my head there's this whole open space that's just like other right Mm -hmm. just not what when you imagine person 
and you're imagining basically like Barbie dolls, like Barbie and Ken. Anything that isn't that is over here. And there's so much with uh, like fatness uh, historically in terms of the oppression of fat people is so linked to sexism. It's so linked to homophobia. It's extremely linked to racism. Uh, gender is a huge question when it comes to fatness because you're usually either seen as like not like if you're a fat woman, you're not a right woman, you know, a real woman. You know, you you can't really be feminine and fat. You can't, but you also can't really be. If you're a fat man, you're referred to as a woman. You're teased for being feminine. If you're a fat woman, uh, you're called masculine. So it's this. You basically just. Oh, I've never thought yeah. that. But yeah, that, that's so. I mean, yeah, you're that, basically exactly. not the thing that you are, right? Like I have a, a friend who's uh, a, tr- a trans man who when he wasn't aware yet that he was a trans man, when he was living uh, as a woman, everyone kept saying, oh, you're, you're a man, you're a boy, you're a man. And then he was like, yeah, I am a man, actually. And then everyone was like, no, you're not, you're a woman. <laughs> he was like, what do you want from me? <laughs> yeah. It's this odd, like, whatever the thing is that you need to be in terms of straight, feminine you know, womany fatness is just like not that. Fatness means that you are your uh, autonomy is taken away from you. Your uh, any kind of decision around people think that they can tell you how what to eat, what to do. They assume you don't know what you're doing. They assume you just need to. Hey, have you considered um, maybe eating fewer calories and going for a run? And you're like, mm. gee, I haven't been told that since I was eight years old. Every single day, my entire life. Mm. And I think the fat space, when you are saying no to diet culture, mm-hmm. it's the same space you're in when you also say no to sexism and toxic heteronormativity and everything else that our society is like, here are the nice three boxes you could fit into. Yeah, like the gender ideology. Gender, sexuality, all of the things. Like if, mm-hmm. as soon as you start saying no to diet culture, you also start saying no to beauty standards. And with that, mm. there's so much correlation between that and gender, femininity, sexuality. Yeah, so I think right. we're all saying no to the same things. We're all trying to just exist as people who are not what they want us to be. And that was a really long, mm. tricky answer, wasn't it? Does it make sense? No, it makes total sense. And I'm pleased that it was a long, tricky answer because it went on a journey that was really interesting. Yeah. And made more sense to me. And I think that's really important to share that because that's something that hasn't come up on the podcast before. And... It's something that makes so much sense to me. But, you know, I I knew that, you know, when you mentioned it earlier, I was like, I have to come back to that because I think it's it's good for me to understand that. And I think it'd be good for people to hear that because it's something that isn't spoken about in public discourse unless Mm. it's like, here's someone that's, oh, super drug are doing a thing and there's some... Dove, yeah, positivity models for for two weeks. And then it's back to, you know, I know that different places are, are better and worse at doing that, but... Yes, like brands, like being cool, 
with people that aren't yeah. this standard of body type for yeah. two weeks. There's people who are size 12 instead of size 8. It's, whoa. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but the fat liberation movement was started in late 60s by the Fat Underground group, which consisted of black and all Jewish fat queer women. Like, it's it was started by queer people. Where was that? Tell it's me. It's in New York. It was started in New York. New York, of course. Uh, there was a big fat in, so where I think it was like five, yeah, five hundred fat people met up in Central Park and ate ice cream and burned diet books. Oh, Isn't that's that the so best cool. thing ever. <laughs> Which is why when brands do go into this body positivity thing, it's so insulting that they then choose, you know, white, essentially thin women, and they make it all about love yourself, love your curves, which is in itself a fine statement. But Mm -hmm. fat liberation, you know, the, the fat underground movement was about systemic change. It was about how we treat fat people in society and how we want rights, you know, we want, access yeah. to proper healthcare. We want, you know, access to jobs mm. and, you know, cause like fat people are being paid less, they're being hired less. Landlords yeah. are 50% less likely to rent to, to fat people. Trans people can have their gender affirming surgery denied if they're fat. Fat people are not allowed to adopt uh, if you're a certain weight and above. Sometimes kids can be removed from families if they're fat because that's seen as like child abuse. Like there are so many issues with rights you know fat people going to the doctor and the doctor refusing to touch them because they are repulsed right and they actively just go it's all about losing weight so like fat people who may have some kind of illness they're more likely to die from that illness because they're not getting proper help so sure we can all love ourselves (laughs) but that doesn't change the fact that we're being treated very badly you know, I can't love myself out of uh, oppression, right? I can't love myself right, into right. fitting into a plain seat. You know, we need some kind of systemic change in general, which is also what we have, you know, in common with so many of the other queer movements. You know, we, we can't just, we can't love ourselves out of not being allowed to get married, right? Like, yeah, sure. Oh, just love yourself. Totally. But I'm not allowed to marry my partner. Mm, but what if you loved yourself a bit more? No. <laughs> oh, Sophie, thank you so much for explaining that. No, it's my favorite so, thing to talk about. Great. Um, and yeah, I feel like I really, it all makes perfect sense. You've become an ally, very- like a real good ally. Well, yeah. And yeah. I just, and I just hadn't, <laughs> you know, in a very selfish way, I've sort of have been like, yeah, body positivity is great. But because it's something that doesn't affect me, you know, and that's a very that's me being very me, me, me. But you know, it's it's good to go, oh fuck, yeah, okay. All right. I hear you. Thank you for hearing me. Not everyone does, and more people should. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I wanna ask you, I've got two more questions to ask you, because okay. I know that you've got you've got such a sort of a dedicated audience who love what you do and that are and you've you've been doing stuff like gender neutral bathrooms and you know having uh circumferences is that the right word of seats so oh, that yes. people know that they'll be able to fit and all stuff like that and because people love you and adore you as they well should is it ever sort of oh god ca- can i talk about this on stage or do are people going to be cross with me because they see me as this specific person 
I know what you're asking. Uh, it's been a journey. Right. Also, if you don't want to do this question, you don't have to. No, 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 okay. no, no, no. It's, it's something I think about a lot. And it's, I think it's something that especially fellow public figures or artists, I think it's something we all need to think about because it can be so detrimental both to the audience and us. Because it started in 2016 when I made my entire tour, like all the toys were gender neutral. Uh, I made all the gigs anxiety safe. So if people needed something like... You can be let into the room before the show starts, or if you need a specific sure. seat, you can pre all those things. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. And there was one more thing I also did, which I've now forgotten. Oh, trigger warnings. Right. And I didn't think of, I only thought like, this is all a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously. So when you say trigger warnings, would you say at the beginning of the show, there's a bit in the show that's about X? No, I think with this one, it was on the website, right? And then sure. the show I did after that, I I literally put um, pamphlets on each of the seats that had like, here are the trigger warnings, and here are like organizations that could help if you're affected by this. That is such a kind and thoughtful thing to do. I'm never doing it again. Okay, sure. It well, fucked up <laughs> everything. <laughs> okay, so talk to me through oh. it. <laughs> um. It, it all comes down to um, uh, the sort of accommodation versus actual safety. Uh-huh. What happens is when people think, when people feel safe, like this event is going to be safe for me to go to, you you get rid of all of your guards and you show up as completely just yourself and then you are so much more vulnerable when things don't work out right which because means still in the world you know your show is you there know. would be people who were triggered because staff would say ladies and gentlemen please the show is starting now sure. that's not something i can control no uh, i would have someone in with tourettes i cannot control what they shout out nor should i be able to no totally uh, totally there would be staff who were just for no no reason there would be like a last minute change where they refuse to make it toilet gender neutral people would get more triggered than people get usually because they were mm. expecting this and that and then uh it affected just on like a very selfish level um reviews yeah of course so many reviews would be like well we were all warned that this show was going to be like really really triggering but it wasn't actually that bad uh, because so many people don't understand what the trigger warnings aren't necessarily like whoa this is the worst yeah. thing ever it's just like this show contains this and that so that would fuck up the, yeah. I, I, the show i did where i did trigger warnings i got stage fright because i was yeah. so tense around like oh uh, and people would, this, that's another thing. People would still get triggered. Now they yeah. would just be nervous ahead of time because they knew something bad was coming. And also the, the times I've had people who were properly triggered, it has never been because of the topic. It has been because of like a little thing. Like I, I have a friend who had a very bad um, assault situation happening with a specific type of furniture from Ikea. Every time someone mentions that piece of furniture, she's triggered which you can't set, put a trigger warning on a show like that. No, and I can't no. promise that, you know, you're on stage, there's adrenaline, you have to think and about 400 different things. And you don't someone know heckles, thing. Yeah. If someone heckles and you go, sorry, sir, 
whoopsie, mm-hmm. it wasn't a man, you fucked up, which is something that happens and we all should be able to do and go, shit, I'm so sorry that I'm d- that shouldn't happen. But if someone came in there thinking this person will never, ever, ever misgender me, and they won't do anything They're going to be so much more hurt. So I've stopped doing trigger warnings, mm. uh, which the first show I did without trigger warnings was really tough. A lot of people got triggered. I totally understand that. It sucks. They were expecting, they thought that it meant that I would do it for every show. They learned that I didn't. That was tough. But what also happened was people stopped thinking that everything that I was going to do would be perfect. I have never been more criticized and stressed out than in the years where I did all of these accommodations because people would be so, they would expect so much from me that you wouldn't expect from any human. No. It would just be like, well, why aren't you doing this? Yeah. Oh, like you are not, like people would be like, well, I actually have light sensitivity. So why are you not doing some shows in... And that's a shame for people with like sensitivity, yeah. but there is only so much that one person yeah. can do. And, you know, comedy is sort of for the masses. And so you can make, you know, you, you wouldn't be making a living if you did a show that that's didn't, what have I said, and didn't yeah. have that and didn't have the other. Like you, you would At one point I, I had a list of all the things that people, like I was like, if I had to do a show that lived up to every single thing I've been asked to do, I would have to build my own venue. Oh my gosh, yeah. And like, because right. then it was like, well, how can you say you're inclusive if your tickets, uh, if you don't have a lot of tickets there that are free of charge? How right. can you be inclusive if you don't have sign language interpreter? How can you be? And all of those are in the, in and of themselves valid questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the problem isn't me. The problem no. is society. Yep. Uh, general, just like ableism, yeah. patriarchy, capitalism. And I felt like, the shows just didn't become fun. It was just a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and people ended up leaving more upset than if I'd never done the thing. So what I do now is I have, which is another thing that's also bitten me a bit in the bum. I just, I do um, gender neutral toilets. That's still happening. I like that. And then I have the uh, fat accessibility. But even that is like, I say to the venues, put the information on your websites so people can go on the website and they can see if they can fit into the seats. Even that, I'll have people who are like, I couldn't fit into the seats. I'm like, yeah, but on the website, it says, if you can't fit into the seat, email this thing. And then they're like, yeah, but I don't want to talk to someone about it. I'm like, I also understand that, but that is beyond my control. Yeah, because you're not, uh, you, 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 you can't. You're not there to facilitate someone's life. You're there to be a stand-up and to tell I stories can, and do it in as as accessible way as possible for as many people as possible. And if I could choose between two theatres on the same date, on the same yeah. night, with the same deal, and one had better seats, sure. Yeah. But that's never how touring works because it's the biggest puzzle in the world. People, And that's the thing. I remember someone saying to me, I can't believe you're gigging on the night of some sort of foot, women's football thing. And I was like... <laughs> I, I I think that my gig was scheduled before their game. And also, I, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry there's two gay lesy things to do. <laughs> there's usually neither. So feel happy that you've got a choice. <laughs> I, I, and I, at the same time, I understand it. Like, yeah, I also totally get really upset agree. when totally I, agree. when something is like not accessible for me. Of but course, it's not, I, if people are trying their best, it just becomes this, it's essentially, at the very end about their own safety because mm-hmm. 
there's so many studies that show that trigger warnings don't work. Right. And sometimes just by seeing a trigger warning, people get triggered, right? Yeah. And then I also think we need, as and I say this as someone with severe PTSD, mm-hmm. there is a difference between triggered and I'm a bit uncomfortable now because mm-hmm. I've listened to a thing that I didn't like. There's a huge difference between triggered and that. And I think yeah. like 90% of people who are triggered, no, you just don't like hearing about the topic or like that brought up a bad memory, which is also bad, but that's not the same thing. And, and, and how much can you do? You know, you can't do research on every person that comes to a show. But yeah, that's really I absolutely tough. cannot. And also your, your job, obviously we are lots mm. of things. And, you know, you and I fit into a similar category of stand-ups that, you know, talk about some real shit on stage and we talk about identity and we talk about you know uh, I don't know you know uh how we'd like the world to be you know and and stuff like that but the bottom line is you're trying to be funny and when you're boxed in by all those things I I would have found it so I wouldn't have been was why as you came on the school today with you I said um I sometimes get things wrong please correct me in the moment um yeah please let me know if i get your pronouns wrong i'm really sorry if i do you know and all that sort of stuff because and that's just a conversation between two people who know each other yeah producer emma who we both know (laughs) and i was already like i'm gonna tell you already that i'm anxious about getting this wrong but like i can't imagine doing that in front of a theater that must have been so fucking stressful i just i i really just want i want people to be able to relax yeah (laughs) especially with the most uh, yeah, and also I, the amount of people who think they're defending me on mm. social media when someone, like friends of mine will be like, oh, Sophie, she's this and that. And then strangers will go, their pronouns are exclusively they, them, and they've said this many times. And I have to go, eh, whoa, my my pronouns are any pronouns. Mm. This is my friend. Like, even I, if they weren't my friend, even mm. if my pronouns were exclusively they, them, it does nothing good to be like, excuse me. Like, you can be really nice and gentle about it, which yeah. I think we should be as mm. well as we can. Totally agree. I, not to tone police, if you're a part of the oppressed group, fair enough. Totally, yes. Be angry. Yes, yes. But if you're talking on behalf of a group of people and you're then being aggressive about it, you're making things worse for that group of people. 100%. And I think a lot of, a lot of us have enjoyed, and I am part of this group, I have enjoyed being very good at learning all the rules about when you are a better person than others. And then I felt very superior that I could shout about how good I was at that. And it takes a lot to leave your ego at the door Mm -hmm. and try and just show up as a flawed human being Mm -hmm. because that hurts your ego, but it makes a better change in the world to just show up. Perfect. Couldn't agree Another more. very long answer to your question. I, I love your long answers, and I love that I can see Hank. Oh, yeah. He's... In the background. Um, Sophie, I'm sorry we've overrun, but I'm going to ask you more, one more very quick question. Fine. And then your afternoon is your own. I asked everyone the same question. It's the final question, because I know that there are lots of people that are listening to the show who may be going through something that's similar to part of what we've discussed throughout today's conversation. And uh, we have... Okay, Hank. All right. I don't know what you did there, but you did something. He's done now. He's okay, has sure. no more Just a little shake. Uh, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> and I may be thinking of the version of you when you were really cross that your friend started dressing in a feminine way and stopped wearing the trackies <laughs> and you felt like it was a personal affront to you. Yeah. If you could reach out to 
that version of Sophie and or indeed someone that's listening today that is maybe going through a similar thing where they're working out who they are and they're having those intense feelings about a friend and it's not quite what you want it to be if 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 you from the future could give them a word of advice what would you say Mm. god i don't know i feel like it's advice i still need i think the advice i probably would have liked to hear Mm -hmm. the thought that is the most helpful and it's going to sound probably offensive to some is there's so much that comes between me and my sexuality, gender, confidence, everything that is to do with the male gaze. So if I was to envision a world where there were just no, no men, how would I dress? How would I behave? How short would my hair be? <laughs> how little would I care about like how my body looks? How differently would I be able to see these women or non-men? And how much would I be able to identify what the feelings were? Mm-hmm. If I imagined that the male gaze didn't exist because there were no men, And I think that is when I have been the closest to figuring out who I am and what I actually enjoy. Because still today, when I wear anything, like I I haven't worn dresses for years now, but if I wear something that is the opposite of what I have been taught, like turtleneck versus a V-shirt, V-neck shirt, my first thought is, oh, I don't think men will find this attractive. And that skews everything. So who are you without the patriarchy? Who are you without men? Or, I don't know, flip it on its head if it's the opposite problem. I just don't know anything about that problem. (laughs) That's at the very least an exercise you can do in your head that for me has been quite helpful in figuring out what am I actually doing because I still think I need to, you know, make the men happy. And what's actually me and what would I actually love? Or how would I love and who would I love? Perfect. Sophie, thank you so much. This has been one of my favourites ever. Thank you. I loved that. Thank you. There we go. That was the brilliant Sophie Hagen. Check out everything that they're up to and go and see them live. If you want to get in touch, you always can. The email is hello at wasuzyruffle.com. I will be back next week with a brand new episode. And I'm very excited to share this series. And I'm very grateful that so many of you are coming along for the ride. If you're coming along to one of the tour shows, please, if you want to, stick around afterwards, say hello. It really means the world to me. As so many of you know, this podcast is a real passion project for me. I do all the booking and I do all the research. And it's just me and my producer, Emma. And a lot of energy and hard work goes into this show, as I know that you know. And it really means a lot when people when people express the the joy that they get from listening so yeah come say hi i'm on tour all over the country you can find all details at suzyruffle.com and i will be back next week take care